1: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. So good evening, everyone. I was thinking a long time today about what to share tonight. I kept thinking, what's the most relevant thing I could talk about? What would be important at this point of the retreat, and as you know, we move into change happening tomorrow. Like, what, what was, you know, what, what would be really good? And so, um, I think tonight I want to talk about. Some of the heart of the Buddha, the heart of the Buddha's teachings, a bit, but I really called this talk "Following the Yellow Brick Road," right? Because that's what a lot of people are asking: "What do I do now? Spring? Now what? You know, retreats and like, Ah, or panic sets in. It's like, yeah, follow the Yellow Brick Road. So let's talk about what that means uh, for our our life and our path. And I think it's a beautiful exploration in what we've been doing here is so valuable. So we're going to talk about that some tonight. And I thought I would first introduce, for some of you who don't know, this idea of this concept of samsara. And the Buddha taught about samsara a lot. And there's several translations of this word, samsara, but this is where we'll start. Because I think it's really an important aspect of the teachings. Because it kind of lays out where humanity is, where where we sort of a beginning point, where we start to wake up and start to understand. Um, a translation is endless wandering. That's one. Another translation is wheel of suffering. And so, in the Buddhist cosmology, we look we look at vast periods of time not just this life. It's many. It's over and over again. We, we wander, right? And uh, one of the translations of dukkha, which is suffering, is dissatisfaction. So we wander and wander in a state of dissatisfaction, looking for things that will lead to permanent happiness. I think in some way it's an attempt. We're looking for something that will be ultimately satisfying. So it's... Um, similar to what Rebecca was saying last night in her talk, was, is this going to do it? Is this going to do it? We want lasting happiness. And I think that that's a beautiful aspiration. And even the word happiness, somebody brought it up in a small group. What do you mean by happiness? Because that kind of idea, like, happy, you know, that we're sort of... I think what it means is a deep sense of peace. It means that we're no longer looking, wandering, craving. You know that feeling? Has anyone had that here? Sort of like... Lunch is over, and they're like, what's for dinner, right? <laughs> uh, hurry up, let's go to Meta. Hurry up, let's do the yoga, right? We're always like leaning, and we're li- just like, un- it's like we're thirsty, and we can't ever get enough. It's like, that was great, now what? Give me some more, okay, right? And, and I see this in myself. I see this in humanity, you know? It's like we invent all these things to entertain us, to keep us, like, this is going to be it, right? Here it is, rather. It's a zip lining in Costa Rica or whatever, You know, all these different things that we're doing. It's like, this is going to be it. This is going to be it, right? (laughs) Right? After I do this, I'll have lasting peace. Like, in some way, we really think that. And um, what the Buddha is saying in this teaching of samsara is we've been doing that for a long time. Not this life, not 10 lives eons of birth, eons and eons, no beginning to it, right? And and some of you might be skeptical about that. And I just say, hold it with a big view. You know, it's not like you have to believe it. This is just kind of what's presented in the cosmology is that we've been wandering life after life in various realms, what are classically called the six realms of existence. And then we have, and you can see these realms right here in the retreat. Let's talk about the hell realms for a minute, right? <laughs> Anybody have that today? I hatred, aversion—it's like the mind just gets really dark, right? Like rah, latches on, right? That's when the the pasna vendettas get really active, right? The, right? We start looking around, even sometimes it's directed at the teachers. I didn't like what you said, or you're doing it wrong, right? We attach to that. Other people who are walking by, or you know, or the food or whatever it is, right? Or just noise or, you know, we, so we wind up in a hell realm. So you could take birth in a hell realm for a period of time like you take birth here, three low realms, three high realms, right? In the low realms, the hell realms, you, you live out a period of time there and then you cycle out. This is what is, uh, what is taught. Then the next realm above that is the hungry ghost realm, the realm where everybody wants endlessly, craving. Anybody have that in their retreat, right? It's like, can't get enough of it, right? We want, we want, we want, we want, we crave. It's funny, during Matthew's Dharma talk where he was talking about ice creams with add-ons, the moment he started describing that, I was like, I want that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Where's the ice cream parlor at, right? It's 9 o'clock. Right? I just could see it in my mind. And it was like, yes, I could know what I'll add on, and all that, right? Oh <laughs> and uh, But that's a very subtle level. But we're talking about craving on a level that actually we crave so much, it actually begins to destroy life, right? One company decides, I want this land. Sorry, you're in the way, casualty. Right? I mean, we, when we see these played out on bigger levels, we, people the overwhelming fixation of grasp, of want, of greed becomes so overwhelming that human life becomes a casualty. So on one level it is funny with like, I want the ice cream, you know, I, I gotta get it. Okay, we could satisfy that. But what happens when these, these things get bigger, right? And when, when whole groups of people act in a certain way, right, through wanting or not wanting. So Hungry ghosts is a, is a realm, and it's described by an un, sort of this thirst that one can never satisfy. So the Hungry Ghost beings are said to have bellies the size of football fields, and that their throats are like a mile long, and they have a pinhole, tiny mouth. So they're always hungry, right, a huge stomach, needs to eat. And then they, they can't get enough in because it's so long to go down, right? And they're described in all kinds of various states of torment, though. This is not a happy place to be. This is a state of suffering. I could see this very much in my own, you know, where I live in Oakland. You know, in downtown Oakland, I see hungry ghosts there. I think, ah, this person's take birth in a hungry ghost realm, right? There's a woman who lives by our center. I think she lives on the street. For five years, she's asked me for money almost every time she sees me. I think, gosh, I could give her a million dollars. It wouldn't be satisfactory, right? It would just, it's like this, there was a, a mentality there. I see it as like tremendous suffering, this thirst, that's un, un, never satisfied, never satisfied. Then one can take birth in an animal realm. The predominant uh, animal realm is kind of a slowness. You know, when someone says, oh, everyone's acting like sheep, like with kind of a sheep mind. We're not thinking independently. Right? We don't look at things. There's not the sharpness and clarity and wisdom of mind. So one could take birth there. Then there's the higher realms, the God realms, right? Everything's perfect, but the problem there is there's tremendous pride. Oh, I'm a God. Wow, look at me, right? And what happens is all these realms, there's different versions of the realm. There's another realm of a God realm where there's people who have power, right? And there's huge power plays. You see that kind of like clash of the titans or something—the gods fight, right? And this—you know—you see, it, read that in mythology, right? Mm-hmm. Zeus fought with this god, or it sort of plays out archetypally, right? We hear these myths and so forth. But even the high realms don't mean anything because we're still trapped. We're still in a state of suffering. Even the high realms—what happens is you fall to a low one, right—and then. it's it's a collapse. It's kind of like somebody in this realm. I remember I watched a documentary recently about this really wealthy family who built the biggest house in all of America and then lost all their money. And they were just eating McDonald's in this little house at the end. It was kind of like humbling, right? They liked all their wealth or their wealth started to go. Or, you know, so we can see the God realm in this life and then the fall. Right? As you see someone famous and they used to be this great person we loved and then we hate them and then they're in poverty at the end of their life or something, right? So there's constantly it's not stable. None of that's the problem with this process of samsara is there's no real stability. It's like we're we're just thrown into this cycle and it's constant change, constant change, constant change, right? High, low, good, bad, up, down, all these things. And when this process, the Buddha was saying, we've wandered so long, we don't even know um, how long this whole process has gone on for. In the Tibetan tradition, they always say, treat every single person like your mother, because every person has been on this planet. You've lived so many lives, we've all been each other's best friends, sisters, mothers, lovers, children's, grandparents, right? That's how many lives they say has been lived. Right? But we're not Always aware of this and it and it like I said, you can hold this with a a view of just looking at your own life so far. Like you can see into this. Even sitting on the cushion, right? Have you had like the same thought a thousand, ten thousand times, right? We react the same way. That's like a flavor of samsara. We create the same experience again and again and again and again. The Buddha once asked his monks. He says, which do you think is greater, the water and the oceans or the tears that you have shed while wandering on? His answer, the tears. Like in this process, there's been oceans and of tears. And I could see this in my own life when I was very young. You know, I, was, I could see this clearly. Um, a lot of people think by how I am now. Like, I must have grown up, you know, my name is Spring. They think, oh, she probably grew up in some nice hippie colony, maybe in California. It was very different than that, right? Most people are very surprised I grew up in East Long Beach Compton border. It was like home of Snoop Dogg everywhere, right? I was like, oh my gosh, it was really hard. I know we were in low income housing and there was drama and people were fighting all the time and the helicopters were buzzing and my dad had all these issues he was like addicted to things and he would he loved to be in the streets he didn't want to be a family man at all so he kind of abandoned his little family and my mother was very sweet but she had no child skills, I don't think. I think she thought the idea was nice, like, kids, yes. And then when it, it started to get out of hand for her, like, oh, wow, I'm responsible. And I think it was very really hard. You know, she didn't have the inner qualities, actually. She was still so, had a very traumatic childhood of her own. And so she spent time tending to that, like depressed. It was a depression there. But I remember being very young, and my siblings and I, we would be jumping up and down on this green couch We weren't allowed to go outside very much because there was so much chaos. So we had to like stay inside, which is hard for small children, you know. So I remember jumping up and down on this couch and then looking around and being like, "This is going to be really hard." (laughs) Like I surveyed the scene. Like, okay, we have no money, right? This is clear. Very little, right? I don't know what's going on with my father. He's out of it, right? Okay, nothing's going to happen with him for a while. And then my mother, I was like, "Okay, this is going to be hard." And then I was like, okay, and we are African-American, so we seem to be not liked as much. Like, I was starting picking these things up, like, wow, this is a hard life. I remember thinking this. Like, this is going to be a challenge to kind of take these circumstances and learn what I need to learn. It was a funny thought, but it was a real one. And I remember, like, okay, something inside of me was like, you need to mature quickly. You need to grow up because there's no wisdom around Right, And I remember thinking, wow, why is everybody so sad and depressed and angry? Everyone was angry. It felt like everywhere we went, people were in a bad mood. I do remember that and being like, why is there suffering? Why is there fighting? And I would ask these questions all the time of people. And they would think, why are you even asking? Why are you thinking about that? You know. And there was no path. People will say, well, I remember my mom finally getting tired of all my questions, these philosophical questions about, why is this woman outside screaming? Or what is going on with her? Or what, why are these kids just neglect? You know, like finally she just looked at me and said, "Life's a bitch, honey. Then you die. Sorry." Right? <laughs> that was her great philosophy. That's the philosophy by many. So therefore, that presented me with no path. So I was very sad. Like this is it? It couldn't be this cruel, right? This is it? We all just exist like this. And I remember looking around and surveying the world, even when I was in school, and being like, wow, there's so many people in states. Is this it? I just can't imagine it would be that that would be the end of the story. And so when I got into Dharma, when I started to practice, and I went to my first retreat. And before that, I had started meditating on my own. I started reading a lot of books on meditation and psychology when I was very young, trying to understand the mind and what was creating the madness. Why is it like this? Have you ever thought, like, why is the world like this? You wonder, like, what is the meaning of this? What's the purpose of this? That was a question I had. Why is life like this? Why are people like this to one another? So when I heard about an enlightened being, I was very excited, actually. I thought, there's beings who have become freed. This is very good. Like, They don't suffer anymore. This was very uh, appealing. And there's a path to this. There's a way to become like that. That's kind of what I took away from my first retreat. There's these Buddhas and these Arhans and these Bodhisattvas. And there was all these words to describe these different people who had attained freedom. And I was very interested in that. I thought, wow, if there's somebody who has done it and they left a map behind, maybe I could follow the map. (laughs) I could do this, right? I don't know. You know, and I really was kind of, Little naive, I thought one or two retreats, I'll be done, right? You know, it was that idea, right? I think that's how we enter the path a little bit. We're like, yeah, by the end of the young adult retreat, I'll have all my self-esteem issues fixed. Then I'll soar out of here, right? We we kind of have this idea. We don't realize that it was a long process to get in this situation. It's going to take some time, right, to sort of move out of it. So. I In the beginning, I kind of was very like a, a zealot in a way. I guess that's a word. I was very, I said, that's it, you know. I'm doing this full, this full steam ahead. But I'm not the only one who had those kind of feelings in other cultures. See, in our country here, we don't see a path. But in other countries, there is one. Somebody like me would have ordained as a nun at an early age, right, and I would have pursued that wholeheartedly. There's a place to go for those spiritual aspirations. But here, it's confusing. It's like, well, what is the path? You know, we have, what is it? And people tell us various things on where happiness is. So just reflect on that for a moment, about this idea of a path, that there could be a way that we could traverse out of suffering as a a community. Like that's the idea of this yellow brick road, like what if we were to follow it kind of wholeheartedly or at least think about following it, get on it and think about, okay, could I, could I do this or is this something that I want to do? Because so many people offer us their version of the path, right? So when I grew up, people were like, "Okay, get a whole bunch of money, then then you'll be happy, right?" That was kind of the thing from my dad: like, money, money, we got to get the money. We got, and I remember thinking, "All right, all right, okay, get get the money, and you got to work really hard, right?" And then you suffer, and then you get, you know, ulcers or whatever, you know. And I, I would see this, and and you know what? I would see one of the things that really woke me up is when I was teaching at Spirit Rock. I was very young, and I was doing training and sitting in on interviews. I would see a lot of wealthy famous people on retreat, because I would sit in with uh, my main teacher, Jack Cornfield, and I would see people who were on the cover of magazines, I would see people, and they were elders, they were like in their 60s, and they would be weeping tears saying, I've wasted my life, I should have stayed, I had an aspiration when I was young, I wish i would spent the last 25 years suffering, pursuing, pursuing, trying to get something that is... And they would be like, now I don't have much time, and I'd be watching my teacher comfort. Many people like that. And I remember sitting and listening and thinking, wow, this is a beautiful reflection for me. You know, a beautiful reflection. So it's not that pursuing money and all the outer things is bad. That's not it. It's when people take it as the path of liberation wholeheartedly, if I get this. At the end is the the you know the joy that I'm looking for. and that's where they're go- they go off. right? And so then also, when I was younger, I saw a lot of people pursuing sports. I was another one in our neighborhood. I had a brother who was went to Florida State and tried to get into the pros and all this stuff. And so it was like, athletics, you know, let's do this and let's do that and and then, yeah, get on TV, yeah, go be celebrity. you know, there's a lot of that in Los Angeles I remember being like, All these paths don't seem that good, you know. I remember reflecting and thinking, "No, I need to figure out something else." I don't think happiness is there at the end of that. So again, that brought me back, brought me back to a spiritual life, you know. And also, when I heard about samsara, when a time I was twenty-three or twenty-four, I felt very old already. Some of you may feel like that. I felt old. I used to walk like a very old lady, too. I did. I used to be bent over and kind of tired. and like I had been through so much, like trauma and drama and all the, like, just everything of our culture and this kind of self-induced hatred and the confusion and, you know, college junk. And it just like, it just all welled up and I would walk all around here. I would come on long retreats and I was like, oh, it's a woman. Right, And I remember feeling like, ah, when they would talk about some samsara, but like, yes, I've done this before. Have you ever felt like that? Like something you think, I've already done that. I know. Oh, it's so, it's not the way. Or you feel deja vu, it's real. Like I've been here before. Wait, didn't we? And it could even be just the weekend before. Wait, didn't we do this last weekend? Weren't we at this bar? Or weren't we? Like, you know, we, we start to, re, the repetitiveness Right? We can learn from that. It's like, hmm. So there's all these paths, you know, get power, do this, do that. You know, we focus maybe on our looks. You know, people might think that's the path to happiness. I'll get a new body, right? That'll be it. There's never satisfaction in that. That's like, because it changes, right? It's like just when you get it all together, it starts getting old, right? So it's like, look in the mirror. It's like a few cracks in the... (laughs) Right, and then we have to suffer that. So, no matter what you do, I've discovered that no matter how much wheatgrass I drink in yoga, I'm still getting old. I'm looking in the mirror like, no, no, I can push it all back, right? And I look at my passport picture and there's no, get, there's no denying, right? Like, yeah, I'll be 40. Yeah, this, and pretty soon after that, I'll start to be an elder. I think, man, do you know, this is a chip. Where did the time go? So putting all the energy into trying to work with a body from a perspective of manipulating it or or forcing it, it it's not happiness at the end of that one, right? So there's all these paths and I'm trying to explain that this is what the world will tell you. This is what our society will say, ultimate liberation is at the end of. You could say this is a big delusion. Right, so Buddha is pointing in a very another, another direction, right? He's saying, no, no, friends, happiness is actually in a different place. I like this quote again by the, uh, in the Dhammapada. These are the words of the Buddha. He said, Through the round of my many births, I roamed without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder. Painful is birth again and again. House builder, you're seen. You will not build a house again. All your rafters broken, the ridgepole destroyed. Gone to the unformed. The mind has come to the end of craving. I'm saying in some way he's like the house of craving, the house of wanting, the house of this, what is the pursuit of samsara is this wanting the next thing, wanting. Yeah, let's try to build this, or do this. Or let's, you know, it's like this wandering. And it's not that we don't live our life with a lot of dynamic energy. That's not what this is saying, because I think that might be the fear, right? It's like, oh, great, well, what do I do? Live at IMS, eat tofu, and walk slowly, right? And we're like, I don't, I don't want to do that, right? So, so I'm not saying that this is how you have to live, right? This is, this is a retreat, let's be clear, right? Some of you, that you may end up staying here, right? And that might be a beautiful thing, but for most of us, we'll go out into the world. We'll live full lives, right? We'll live and we'll, we're not saying that there has to be restrictions. It's just, let's look at being a spiritual person first, right? That in some way, we set our, our boat sailing to the sun, and then everything else is in service of that, right? Our livelihood, everything flows out of that. And so that's what the Buddha laid out when he gave the Eightfold Path. He said, this is a prescription to healing. This is, if you want freedom, take this. It's as if you went to the doctor, right? I always use the doctor analogy in shaman or in like, like a healer, like we go, right? By this point, you've seen that your mind has crazy moments, yeah? Has anyone not seen that? And we see, right? It gets really hard. So the Buddha gave a prescription to the end of this kind of suffering, the end of confusion, right? The the Four Noble Truths are, in some way, the truth of suffering, right? It's like there's an illness, right? That's the first Noble Truth. There's an illness, something's wrong here, right? The second one, there's a cause. Right, And it's gra- grasping, clinging, thirsting, right, is this cause. Like always wanting something, not wanting, wanting. The same thing, wanting and not wanting. Right. The third noble truth is what I really like. There's a complete cure. So if you went to the doctor and you got a terrible diagnosis, you'd be upset, right? You'd be like, oh, no. And then he said, there's a cause of this illness. And that'd be okay, a little better. But then if they said there's a 100% treatment, Now we'd be like, now we're talking, okay. (laughs) Let's hear the treatment, right? And then you get a prescription. And everybody has gotten a prescription, right? Take this for seven days, then do that, drink water, don't do this with that, you know, stay stay out of the sun. And then they say, take the whole thing. Don't stop, right? You have to take it all. The Eightfold Path is our prescription. It's like, friends, follow this as a guideline. Stay on the road and we learn, we wake up. This is our. This is essentially what we do to heal the mind, the heart and mind that's confused. So we can talk about this a little bit now. It's kind of a long, but I'm just gonna to touch on a few things because I would encourage you to maybe even look into this outside of the retreat as a whole teaching unto itself. It's very beautiful in its simplicity. This is another, one of my favorite quotes by Nyoshil Ken Rinpoche. He says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. I could say this, over and over. So this is how we begin to rest in the peace um, that's available. It's right here. We just have to tap into it. right? It's always, it's always with us because the present moment's always right here. So the beginning of following this path is the first two links. It's an eightfold, you could say, treatment plan. And it starts with wisdom. And the beginning is wise view. And I think this is everything. And I, in some way, I feel like this is what we've been doing this whole retreat, is working with wise view. Wise view is sort of a way in which we begin to understand how suffering is created, right? We start to see how our thoughts and emotions link together, right? We start to understand that more clearly. The heart of wise view is a deep understanding into cause and effect. It's important that we all reflect on we're planting seeds at every moment i'd like to use this as an analogy we're seed planters right and we can plant wholesome seeds right we want beauty we want love we plant those seeds right when we're not aware when we act in hatred we act in just greed or strong delusion right we plant those seeds and it's not about being a sinner or being right or wrong it's actually what's skillful What's not skillful? Skillful actions lead to happiness. Unskillful actions, usually done unconsciously, lead to suffering. Right? So there's essentially no judgment in it. You plant this, you get that. You plant that, you get this. Right? So out of our awareness, what we start doing is planting more of the seeds that are about compassion, wisdom, love, devotion, service. Right? We start moving away from planting the other seeds. Right, or pull out those roots of that, right? We extract them, purification. And then more, we plant the seeds of the wholesome. And we start to understand how the seeds, how this works, right? How suffering is created, cause and effect. We understand the Four Noble Truths a bit better. And then that becomes our view, right? Our view of practice becomes yes, let me move towards the wholesome, skillful actions because that is the less painful path, right? So we don't do it because we should, or it's we do it because we've learned, right? If you put your hand on a hot stove, it takes one time, right? And you're like, yeah, no thank you, right? That's hot. You don't keep doing it. But some of us do. It takes some time, right? That's OK, though, because life is school. This is a school of life, and we'll repeat the chapter again and again until we get it. Like, oh, OK. And out of love for ourselves, we move towards more skillful actions. we like, oh, okay, yeah, let me plant the seeds of love, right? Let me shy away from this, because we see how it's all happening. So that's wise view. That's in a nutshell. We, th- we think of it as the knowing the truth of things, knowing impermanence, knowing where happiness really is. We set about following the yellow brick road, right? We sort of take our little bag and like, OK, I'm going to head slowly down this path, right? just having that as a view. Then out of that naturally flows our wise intention, which all of you have very wise intention because you're here at this retreat. So if there is some deeper part of you that's very attuned to these teachings already, actually, I'm just telling you what you already know. I'm just reminding you, the teachers we just remind you of what you already know again and again and again. Like, come back to the moment, let go. We say the same thing every, every <laughs> night, right? And we say the same thing to ourselves. It's like, oh, I forgot. I can't tell you how many of the same Dharma talks I've heard, and it's always like, oh, yeah, great. right? And they've been for months, on the three months, like every night it's like a new talk, but they're all the same. Can you be with this? Can you let go? Right? It's always that. And we're like, I don't know if I can let go. And then we do, right? Or we accept what is painful. It's hard to remember. This is why remembering the path and reminding yourself is everything because we're so forgetful, right? We just forget and forget and forget. I've underestimated this ability of my mind to completely be like, what are we doing here again? Oh, yeah, mindfulness. Yeah. Less now for me, but in the early days, I would, I would forget a lot. So we need a constant reminders to ourselves. So wise intention is a little bit of that. It's this idea that we're, we're, we're intending to go, stay on the path. Like, oh yeah, why am I here? Okay, we want to practice mindfulness. Let's let go. We remind ourselves of our intention. right? We remind ourselves to practice a little bit of renunciation when our mind is crazy. We try to do a little bit of mindfulness. Right? We intend that. We intend that. We intend to be less harmful in our speech. Right, We, t- we try to look at the Dharma as a way of living. We're like, OK, let's, let's try to incorporate this. Right, Let's move away from what's not helpful in my life towards what is. We just, it's a little bit of a shift. So that's the wisdom part. And um, then actually comes our ethical conduct in the world. This is an important part for us, going home. You're going home. And everybody is terrified to go home, usually at the end of retreats. Mostly when I was very young, I remember going home and being like, oh no, because my life at home looked totally different than here. I'd be thinking of my roommates and like all their parties. I'd be like, oh no. And I'd be going back to a very urban environment. And there just this terror would set in, like the last few days of a retreat. So I'd be like, how am I going to meditate? It's too this, it's too that. I'd have these jobs maybe that I wasn't so into. Um, but what happens is over time you bring them together. Your life on retreat won't seem so different anymore if you keep coming. Because as you're following the path with intention, there's a harmonious coming together that starts to happen. Right? Your life begins to reflect that. The people around you begin to reflect your path. You find other path seekers with you. So once you are alone walking, suddenly you have friends, right? And then they help each other, it's like, ah, let's remember, let's remember. Again, it's all about helping each other remember the teachings, right? And good community will do that for you. They'll remind you, yes, oh, oh, okay, you know, this is what I'm doing, That yeah, this is it. So how we live in the world is the other aspect of our path. We have to live with some kind of ethics, You know we do, and people used to hate. When I was younger, I used to hate hearing talks like, "Oh no, now they're getting all moralistic on me." You know, now they don't do this, don't do that. I used to kind of feel rebellious when I would hear the talks. I'd be like sitting there, like, "Oh, you know." But now I've come to see through analysis that my ethics is about my freedom, because now even if I do a tiny thing like. There were some ants in the kitchen where I'm staying, and there's nothing in there they could possibly want, but they're everywhere, right? So I was trying to wash the counter to put water on it or like clean it again, and one got squished in my sponge. And the sensitivity that is there now is like, oh, like I felt that a little bit, like that wasn't so good. I'm going to just leave the kitchen. They can have it. There's nothing in here. One day, they'll figure out there's nothing in here. It's so clean. It can't want anything. They'll go. But that's why I don't do things anymore, because it hurts me. You wouldn't believe how many tears I had on this cushion right where you are, crying over all the crazy stuff I said to people I did when I was younger. I would just be like, oh. And the purification would come. I would think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. And I spent a lot of time when I would go home from retreats making it right. I would make it right. So if you're one of those people that you have to make something right, just do it for yourself. I would ask for forgiveness from family members or just even little things that I had done, right? I would, I would just, I would sort of move that energy not from guilt but out of like cleaning my conscience, right? There's nothing like the bliss of blamelessness. Right, where you just sit and you you know you haven't done anything. You're like, okay, great. The mind sinks into concentration then, because it's not all fretting over all those things that it's done. Right, like, oh, we have to purify those things. We don't. They come. Right, anything that we do in greed, hatred, and delusion, we move in that direction. There's an effect. The effect is us. We get hurt by that. So that's helped me understand this practice. So wise speech is a really important wise action and wise livelihood is a, a huge part of the Eightfold Path. right? How we speak, how we move our body, what we do, and how we earn money. This is a big one, yeah? Like, oh, how do I earn money? How do I live? How do, what, do I, what do I say? So with wise speech, we start to just harmonize our speech. Right, and this was a big area when growing up because everybody was yelling a lot. So I kind of took that on as a young age, like, oh, you have to be heard, you yell, or you know, act out, or I had to transform that very actively. And it's much easier now, but it's something we all work on. So we speak the truth whenever possible. We try to tell the truth. We try to speak with kindness, right? We're not harsh with people or abusive. That even goes for ourselves. We're not harsh and abusive in here, right? The inner dialogue can be brutal. We can be nice to everyone else, but what is the inner realm? So we we don't talk about people behind their back. We just try to use our speech to heal people, right? Speech is so powerful. People who listen to hate talk radio, it influences their mind tremendously. Wars are started over people on radio stations, like putting out hate. Words have huge power. Somebody could sit here and say hateful things, and we'd all be hurt by it. Somebody here could sit here and speak words of love, and it would bring harmony to people. So we just use our speech in the power of peace, of healing, of harmony. It's really important in that way. one last example I just want to use about speech, because it's such a, a huge area, because it carries energy, big energy. Like if somebody in a group says, just think about the harm when somebody uses the N word, a whole community, like, Goo-ah, right? I mean, that woman, I think she was the cook, Paula Dean, had confessed as saying the N word, and it was just a huge ripple effect, right? This one word carries a lot of power, said with hate or said in a certain way. So we just want to know that our speech is powerful and just be bringers of peace and harmony with our speech as much as we can as training. There was this teacher one time, a very powerful teacher once came up to me, somebody I highly, highly admired. I won't say who it is, but someone I had tremendous power and had a huge influence on me. She came up to me one day and she put her hand right here and said, spring, from now on, let every word You say, be like a mantra. Mantra, om mani padmi hum. It's like beauty, love, and compassion. Like Let it have the vibration of mantra. Don't speak unless it has that. And that's been hard to do, right? It's like, uh, wait, is that like a mantra? No, that's not like a mantra. (laughs) Right, and when I mess up, I try very hard to correct it immediately. Even if it's just a little off, like, oh, maybe that was too... I was a little too forceful or maybe that was too quick, you know, but that was powerful for me. So I've tried to take that in. And that leads right into wise action. This is the precepts. Right? Can we practice non-killing like the ant? You know, I just, you know, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't, you know. This one teacher, one time IMS had a mouse problem. And um, this was years ago, not any time recently. This was years ago, and everyone' was like, "What are we going to do?" The meantime the mice were just having a field day everywhere. No one was like, "We can't kill them." You know And they, they did like a seance at one point to try to like ask them to leave. Right? <laughs> it was a really big deal. It was like people were like took their vows, seriously, we could just kill all these mice. We're in their forest, right? It, it was like a huge thing. And out of like health inspection and safety of the retreats, were like, if you guys don't do something, we're not coming back. Because they were kind of hanging out, you know, a little bit. Um, and so they ended up having to do something, but it was like doing it consciously, right, with kindness. Like, okay, I'm going to do this. We have to call an exterminator and catch them. Or now they catch them and then they drive them like five miles away. It's funny and let them go. Um, <laughs> something like that. So we practice with the precepts. We just do our best here. You guys we're going to just we're living in the world with all its complexity, right? So we just try. We try to practice non-stealing by practicing generosity, right? We practice being really mindful with our sexuality only because we hurt ourselves when we don't. I'm sure everybody could have a story right here and now if we were to talk about it, some (laughs) tragedy that was like, oh, by not being mindful, right? Or just like acting from a place of confusion. So what if we use our sexual energy in the highest expression of compassion and care? We don't see that modeled in our culture, right? We don't see the highest of that. So just to bring wisdom to that. And then intoxicants, we just become mindful of that. Some people are fine with a glass of wine. Some people, that leads to three bottles. Not so helpful, right? So just to be mindful. So that's wise action. We live with a sense of loving ourselves, right? Loving others. And then that rolls right into when we we think about those things, right? We think about our speech being in harmony, our actions. We, We try to think about protecting life. And then, how we earn money, livelihood. This is a big question I get asked a lot. It's often, people on retreat go, Oh my God, I work at Chevron Spring, which I do, right? At the end of the retreat, they have this huge realization, or like, I work for this corporation, but I have four kids. What, I don't know how my, you know, and there's a lot of angst about how to earn money and, and, and think about that. I would just think of it as trying to earn money through ways that help the planet if possible. Like do something that tries to be beneficial or create something that's beneficial. There's a lot of people in our area, Silicon Valley, there's all these very like amazing minds down there creating all kinds of green technology, and so they're using their wisdom in ways that are they're making money for themselves while also helping the planet. Right, all kinds of new this guy came to Spirit Rock, gave this presentation, because they have a wisdom 2.0 conference where all these kind of Google people and Facebook, all these high-level people, and Spirit Rock really involved in that. And he had all these amazing inventions and he became a meditator, right? And he switched out of like this corporate job into what could be helping the planet. And it's all these like water treatment for turning ocean water into drinkable water. I mean, he just thinks of all these things. And it gets investors and all this technology from his company. So it's to think about whatever way that you can align yourself, which is harmony. It's investment in yourself, peace with yourself. Classically, the Buddha said avoid dealing in weapons, dealing in living beings, working in the butchery meat business. He said these are the areas to kind of stay away from selling human beings, right? <laughs> like we could see this, but this happens on our planet, right? People sell people into slavery. I can't imagine that, children. So thinking about your wise livelihood is good, how you earn money. And jobs, I, There, when I was meditating here, there wasn't a job that had a meditation teacher, really. Right? There was only like a handful of people doing that, and they were like Joseph Goldstein, you know, this great scholar and other teachers. All these new jobs, they're being invented now. I see people with all kinds of innovative mindfulness in schools, living well, like teaching meditation, stress reduction, there's like a whole crop of, as we change, of new things that haven't even been created yet. So you can think outside of the box and see what happens with your heart. Think through your heart. And it could be something beautiful that you manifest that helps me and the rest of the world, right? So I bow to that. And then the last three are really around mental development, what you've been doing here. Because you have to think about the path as those three things together. Wisdom, right? You're on the yellow big road. You got your map. You're like, okay, we're going, right? Then you have the ethical piece, right? You have to have that piece also part of it. And now the mental development, the mindfulness. We always have to cultivate the mind, right? Left on its own, the mind tends to go dark. That's what I've seen, right? It tends to go chaos. Um, So the sixth, seventh, and eighth aspect of the path is wise effort, which we've talked about, right? Kind of, we make this kind of effort. Sometimes we have to show up to do our practice when we don't want to or, you know, on retreat, you kind of, we encourage that. But think about your life as being a spiritual one, right? Every few months or maybe once or twice a year, you go on retreat, right? And you build that into your life as your check-in, right? It's like, okay, let me go. and, and, And you think about that ahead of time. Like, how can I live this in your community? Right, so wise effort. There's another quote I like um, by the Dalai Lama. How when you know with our mental development, we never give up. So he he says in this beautiful piece called "Never Give Up." No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy is spent in your country on developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, just not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, never give up. And so that's part of it. Like we just keep coming back to the moment. Has there been moments here you're like, I'm over this. I, I give up, right? But then we come back in the hall, like, OK, well, We have some lunch, that brightens the day a bit, right? We're like, okay, I can get through that. There's something in that steadiness, you see your own strength, right? You come back, you don't give up. You come back, you come back. That's a big part, an important part. And then why is mindfulness, what you've been practicing here? (laughs) Right? We incorporate the four foundations of mindfulness. We fill into the body. That's basically what we've been teaching all this week wise mindfulness. How to pay attention to the present moment. How to take care of the present moment, like has been shared with Matthew. How to have equanimity, like Rebecca spoke about. Right? It's, it's how to take care of this moment. How to be in the moment wisely. How to let go. Sometimes I notice that uh, when I teach a lot of different places, like, I'll give you an example. My father and I reunited after 20 years, and um, he's now clean and sober, except he has a little bit, he does like wine, right? So I was trying to teach him how to meditate, and then he called me, and he's like, well, yeah, this great meditation. I drank some wine, I was chilling out, you know, so great. I'm like, okay. Then I was at his house, and I was trying to teach him again. He always really excited about the idea of meditation. Like, yeah, yeah, stress reduction, good energy. Yeah, I need all that, right? So then I was trying to teach him again, and we sat for about 30 minutes. And then I, I had a little tiny bell, and I rang it. And then he jumps up, and he was like, oh, I have so many great ideas. And he started writing down all his new projects. I was like, were you thinking the whole time? And he was like, yeah, yeah, that was great. I was so quiet, you know? And I was like... That's not wise mindfulness. That's the thing. People use their meditation time to think a lot. This is <laughs> and I get it just happens on its own. But sometimes we let it happen a lot in our daily life. We're like, mm, I'll just process all this work drama right now. Okay, yeah, yeah. Or maybe I'll plan, yeah, that and then we like, oh, meditation over, right? <laughs> it's not exactly it, right? So, you at this point kind of know what we're talking about when we mean presence and, and wise mindfulness. So, yeah, we work with that. We work with it. Um, and then that leads to the last one. You know, this is we're always developing, and also with wise mindfulness, too, also with effort and mindfulness, we're developing the good qualities of our heart. Right. Not only are we letting go of all the junk that's in the mind, we're also planting our seeds. Right. We're doing metta, compassion. We're climbing the mind towards the paramis, the qualities of love and generosity. So we're doing two things always. Right. We're we're, we're letting go of that which we don't need, and then we're we're watering the seeds of what we do need and what we do want and what is life-sustaining for us. What is produces happiness, and then The last one is concentration. Why is concentration? Now there's a beautiful collection of mind that happens. When we're following the Eightfold Path, pretty soon what happens is we have the right view. We're like, okay, I'm on the road. Our actions become purified, right? Instead of acting in ways that are maybe unskillful, we rein that in. And then what happens is when we're developing our effort and our mindfulness, a calmness starts to happen, a collectedness of energy. It's very beautiful, can happen at any time, and long retreats is more likely. And we start to understand the level of states of mind that we're not usually used to, different states of concentration. There's a whole map of consciousness that many of us barely touch into, right? Because we don't usually have time or we're busy, but there's this whole other beautiful realm that we then begin to open up into, this concentration where the mind gets very calm, very collected, very steady, and this natural joy and bliss can emerge. States of jhana, some of you might know about the absorption states and jhanic factors. Um, And the Buddha included this in the Eightfold Path saying, yes, this is a beautiful part of the mental development, right, is that we we begin to see more. We go farther out on the ledge. I'm like, wow, right, there's a whole other world over here kind of like looking at a view and then going to a higher place and going, wow, now this is a view, right? It's kind of that, we take the elevator to the top floor for the first time, right? And so this is a beautiful place. The Eightfold Path is not like linear, it circles. It's a circle. They all work together, right? Our wisdom, our conduct, the mental development feeds back into how we live. It's a circle, right? It's not just one to eight. It's a a wheel. Instead of the wheel of suffering, it becomes a wheel of freedom. So this was a lot of information. And so as I begin to wind down this talk, I wanted to give it to you to reflect tonight and tomorrow on your path It's your life and you can choose wherever you wanna go. You can choose how far you wanna go. You can reflect on how am I living now? Is this, am I happy with choices that I'm making, right? And then we just refine it. We just refine, like we reflect, right? Is this leading to joy? Is this leading to happiness? Does this feel like it's in alignment? Because we know when we're in our body, our heart leads the way and your heart if you follow your heart, it's always going to lead to a good place, right, for you and others. There's this great book I read when I was on retreat here. It was called um, The Camel Knows the Way. I think I read it when I was at the Forest Refuge. I know where we I'm supposed to read, but I had to found this book. I read it one night, and um, it was interesting because it was a book about a woman who's Catholic and Buddhist. And um, it was The the title was odd, but once I opened it, it was all about her very close friendship with Mother Teresa. Um, She was like a student and would go to visit Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And and Mother Teresa became her teacher and at times was kind of hard on her. Anyway, so this is an older woman. She was from England. and um, So one day she goes on this ride across the desert. She went to the Middle East. And she hired this exotic trip, and she was going to go on a camel with a guide across this long journey. And so she, they get out there, and they're, they're journeying across the, this long, huge place. They're going from town to town on camels. And, and at one point, the two guides, early in the morning, um, they were supposed to take her to this other town. They stopped. And then they smack the camel on the butt, and then they were like, "Bye, and I'm like, bye, lady. We're going back." And she's like, "Wait, you know you're supposed to take me. I'm paying you." And they go, the camel, he knows the way. You just go, right?" So for ten hours, she was like terrified, alone. You know, and went through this whole journey, as you could imagine, being like abandoned. And, Finally, the camel slowly but steadily pulls up right into the exact spot—not, you know, in the middle of the desert. She kind of went any, she had no idea where they were, in what direction or compass. She had water and some food, and that was it. And um, I really feel like the heart knows the way. Like if you feel into your heart in any moment any moment of your life, if you stop and you pause and think about love and compassion for yourself and you feel into your heart, you're going to know the answer. Don't worry about going home. You're going to do well. You'll know and you'll remember these things that you learned here and we'll encourage you to stay connected and your heart, it's imprinted already. (laughs) You just have to tune in. You just have to Make the call or do something, right? To activate it, usually doing something is just sitting for a moment, right? And feeling, okay, what, what is my intuition? What is the right way to go about this? How do I move? What and you have to make a decision. You'll make it, and you'll remember your path too, right? Like, what does Buddha say here? What would be good advice, right? Okay, I got that. You weigh that into your decision, you know. So at that, we come to an end of this talk of the yellow brick road. <laughs> and we're not alone, friends. Millions of people have walked this path to the end, right? And they've crossed over. And I think that's deeply inspiring for me to know about. When I was, just to end with the story, Dalai Lama, I was in DC a couple of years ago for the Kala Chakra great teaching, and it was like a World Peace Festival kind of Tibetan style, (laughs) and they did the big mandala, you know, and there was all these prayers and everything, and uh, there was an odd moment where he was giving a talk, he would give talks in the morning and talks in the afternoon, and he stopped and he looked at the audience, and there was maybe 25,000 people there, and his face was on one of those jumbo screens, and I was right in front of like the jumbotron, so I was like, I was looking right at him, you know, he stopped and he said, You know enlightenment is possible, right? You have to understand that this is possible. He got really fired up in this unusual way. He said, because if you don't think this is possible for you, if every person doesn't think that, you'll never go because you won't believe it. You'll never set your compass there. Your compass, it will be off. You have to know this is possible. You have to believe freedom is possible. And it was like I just took it in, I was like frozen, like, okay, I believe, I believe. <laughs> I I but it did some piece of faith, it produced some faith in me actually. There was somewhere where I was like, Hmm, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe people from East Long Beach don't get enlightened. You know, like some <laughs> some like very part of the mind that was like self-doubt. It was but something in the ferocity, I felt like it was talking to me. And you know? I was like, Okay, I do think this is possible. Right, and I'll just keep walking as long as it takes. Right, we'll just keep going together. So you're not alone in that. We're all, we're all doing the best we can here. It's not easy to be alive. So well, thank you all for listening and thank you for your practice and your heart and your dedication, so touching. So we just sit for one moment And may our practice be for the benefit and the upliftment and the welfare of all beings. Buddhahood for us all.